Notice at the beginning of our text this morning that, that Jesus starts this parable that we're about to read with the word for. So I'd like to make a few comments about this before we read and pray. For is just a shortened word for the fancy word therefore. Right? So for, like therefore, is a conjunction word. And it links together two pericopes. It links together two sections of scripture, two ideas of scripture. And so Paul is notorious for using this in his letters. But here, what Matthew does is he uses it to link this parable with the events that immediately precede it. So if you have a Bible or a device or look in front of you and grab a Bible, if you would, make your way to Matthew chapter 19. We're starting in Matthew chapter 20 today, but I would like to back up into the section before this. So as you turn there, let me give you some context because we're not going to read all of it. So most of you are going to know the story, this pericope, this section But prior to where we will begin in verse 23, Jesus had just been approached by a young man who was exceedingly wealthy. And this young man wanted to inherit eternal life, so he asked Jesus, and he says, Good teacher, what good deed do I need to do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus responds, and he says, You know, why do you call me good? Right? No one is good but God alone. But Jesus tells him, He says, You know what? If you want to inherit eternal life, then you need to keep the commandments. And the young man responds. He says, well, I have, right? I've kept all the commandments. So Jesus, understanding the motive of his heart and his mind, he ups the ante a little bit. And he says, okay, fine. You've kept the commandments. Well, then go do this. Go sell all that you have. Give the money to the poor. Then you will have rewards in heaven. But then, come and follow me as my disciple. But instead of heeding this call to discipleship, the young man who was very wealthy counted, counted it too costly. Right? He, he loved his possessions too much. He loved his money too much. He loved his wealth. And so he walked away from Jesus, heartbroken and very sorrowful. To which then Jesus responds with this. And we'll pick up in verse 23 and read all that is in our bulletins. So Jesus responds and he says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For... The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. I choose to give... Excuse me. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with with what belongs to me? Or... Do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would pray with me briefly. Lord, we give you praise, and we give you thanks for this day. Lord, we thank you for calling each of us here into the worship of you, Lord, with your gathered bride at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for the worship that we have, ex- that we have experienced already, Lord, through song, and through confession of our sins, Lord, we thank you, Father, for uh, forgiving us our sins in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you, Father, for pouring out your spirit among us, Lord, and, and for inspiring, Lord, your word through your Holy Spirit and your apostles and your, your prophets. Lord, we give you praise, Father, for everything that you have done. And so, Lord, we pray as we continue to worship you through hearing your word and through reading your word, Lord, through Eucharist and more singing, Father, we pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we get started then, again, I wanted to back up to give us some context. But I don't want to miss this fact, which is why I wanted you to open your Bibles. I don't want us to miss the fact that this parable is bookended with a very interesting phrase. In 1930 and in 2016. Which is this, many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then it's inverse in 20. Verse 16, the last will be first, and the first last. This is an important phrase to understand, particularly the theological idea of the great inversion that is brought about by the coming of Christ and the coming of the kingdom. Connor has talked about this a few times in Sunday school as we've gone through Isaiah this year. He brought it up again this morning. But there's an interesting idea in Matthew's gospel that the kingdom of heaven as Jesus describes it throughout this gospel, is part of the already. And now this is vividly understanding, understandable in Matthew 13, which we looked at a few weeks ago. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. It's like a hidden treasure that's found in a field, and the one that finds it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field in order to possess it. It's like a mustard seed that grows into the tallest of the trees to where the birds of the air can even make nests in its branches. It's like leaven that is folded into bread and it expands the bread. 
All of these describe aspects of what the kingdom of heaven is like in the already, in the here and now. With the not yet or the still to come aspects of the kingdom waiting for the return of Christ and the end of the age. But this parable, this parable gives us a glimpse behind the veil of the already and helps us look into the not yet a little bit. Because in this parable, Jesus shows us what is a constant bleed-through effect of the already and the not yet. Because the already and the not yet are so eternally and so cosmically linked together, it's hard to describe one without also considering the other. And so here in this parable, we have a blending of both. So in this case, we see that the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who goes out and he hires laborers to send out into his vineyard. So then, if, if Jesus is giving us a peek behind this veil, as we seek to fully comprehend the kingdom of heaven, then we have to ask some questions, right? Who, then, is the master of the house? Right? If the kingdom is like these things, then we understand Jesus is using simile, right? He's using symbolism and metaphor in order to describe the kingdom of heaven. So who is the master of the house? Who are the laborers? What is the vineyard? Who is the foreman? But also, what are the wages? So, I just want to clear all this up up front, right? We're not going to leave this to mystery. We're going to do, as our brother Walton says a lot, put the snake on the table, right? So, so here is the interpretation. First, the master of the house is God himself. The laborers are all of the believers in Christ who are part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this has also been interpreted to understand that this parable is given to be a message to the difference between ethnic Israel and the new Israel that is the church. So the bringing in of the Gentiles into the covenant. All right, that's fine. But moving on, the vineyard then, if God is the master and we are the laborers, then the vineyard is the kingdom of heaven. The foreman, I would argue, is the Holy Spirit, leaving the wages to be Christ himself. But finally, I would also make the comment that in the, in the spirit of the already not yet, in verse 8, this evening, when the evening comes, this serves as a symbolic understanding of the end of the age. Matthew Henry even addresses this, preaching on this text in the late 1700s. He writes this, he says, no one, no one is hired in the twelfth hour. No one is hired when life is over. Because when life is done, he says, opportunity is done. But while there is still life, there is still hope. There is hope for old sinners if they turn to God. True repentance is never too late. So then, with this interpretation of these elements of the parable, but also within the context of Peter's statement in chapter 19, verse 27, look, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? I want to move forward in looking at this parable. Because now we can start to understand with this context, this great inversion that comes with the kingdom of heaven and Christ Jesus. The first will be last, and the last will be first. So what Jesus does with this parable then is he creates it to address the question of rewards, or the question of wages, the questions, particularly for this rich young man, of his great wealth and his possessions, how do I obtain eternal life? But also, he, had, he had creates this story, this parable, to deal with the problem of an excessive interest in those rewards, like the rich young man. 
So notice in the first seven verses, now we have just one big paragraph here, but in the first seven verses, we just have the hiring process and we have the work itself being accomplished. Right? So the master of the house, this this landowner, again, he he has a vineyard and the harvest is ready. But the laborers are few. Sounds pretty familiar. So the master, he goes out and he sets out to hire laborers to send into the vineyard to bring in the harvest. And he begins early in the morning. So according to Jewish timekeeping, this would have been right after dawn. This would have been around 6 a.m. And we see this being supported by the other hours of the day that Jesus mentions throughout the parable, right? So the third hour is 9 a.m., the sixth hour being noon, the ninth hour being three in the afternoon, and the eleventh hour being around five. And so with this timetable, we can see that those who are hired first work a very long, very hard 12-hour shift. So let's clear up a couple of things for context purposes, and then we're just going to move on from this part of the parable. First, a 12-hour workday might seem absolutely outrageous for us today. Not all of us, but many of us, especially if we work from home. (laughs) But during harvest time, this kind of work is not uncommon. So like tax season for our accounting friends today, or the end of the fiscal year for similar folks, or even inventory time in retail, but also at harvest and planting time in our industrial agricultural sector, right? Scott, if he were here, would attest to this, right? (laughs) Who works for a crop dusting organization, right? There are certain times in which workers are, are expected and understand that they will work longer hours than normal. That's just the way of life and it's the way of business, right? Especially if you need to get a crop in before it rots on the vine, So a 12-hour workday is not uncommon. It's expected. So that's one context to keep in mind as we move forward. But second, each and every one of these laborers were looking for work. Now spiritually, we can make a a very interesting connection here in how each believer searches for the kingdom of heaven like a merchant in search of fine pearls. But notice the language. Again, going, he goes out early in the morning, the master of the house does. He goes out at the third hour, at the ninth hour, the sixth hour, the eleventh hour, the ninth hour. And the master sees these laborers standing there. He sees some of them standing idle because they were waiting to be hired. They were waiting to be called. They had made themselves available because they were looking for work. And our own cultural work ethic, particularly of the good old boy work ethic that I grew up around, These laborers could have probably worked a little harder to try to find a job to do that day, especially these bums right here at the end that wait till the 11th hour of the day, and they say, well, we haven't worked because nobody's asked us to work, right? I mean, let's let's be honest. That's a lazy response. But regardless, right, regardless, the point here that Jesus is making is that each is given the same command. They're each given the same commission. Go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. They were each chosen to go into the master's vineyard for the same task, to work it until the end of the day, or to work in the kingdom until the end of the age. And so then we read this, picking up in verse 8. And so when evening came, when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour had come, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, 
They thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. We'll pause here for a minute. So Jesus' parables usually have some form of a, of a twist to them, right? This, this also works within the great inversion aspect. Right? So this twist usually is a departure from the expectations of our sensibilities in order to make a point about the reality of the kingdom of heaven. So the master's decision to pay these last laborers, the ones that were hired last, to pay them first, but also to reward them a full day's wages for one hour's work is part of that twist. This, this is the twist. But because we know what Jesus is doing here, it's almost hard for us to appreciate what's happening within the moment. Right? Again, he's telling a story. But the apostles would have picked up on the insanity of this very quickly. So let's take a moment and try to imagine ourselves in their shoes, right? But even more so, the workers that have worked 12 hours, right? They have worked all day long. It's been a very hot day, right? Yesterday was the first day of autumn, and it's going to be 85 degrees today. It's still going to be warm, right? Because we live in the American South, and it just is what it is, right? But you've worked all day long. You've worked outside. This is grueling work. Cutting off great clumps from a vine is a lot of work. They didn't have the machines to do it then, right? We have machines to help us with this now. But, but you notice, though, right? It's the end of the day. The evening has come. You've been called in to receive your pay. And you notice that those latecomers, so, you know, they're good fellas, but they've only been here an hour. But they're getting a pretty nice wage, right, for one hour's work. So you're standing at the end of the line, and you're watching the foreman come towards you, and you you would probably rightly assume that, well, you know what, I've worked all day long. If he's giving them a full day's wage, then surely he's going to give me more. But as the foreman slowly makes his way down the line to you, you notice everyone is getting the same salary. Hang on a minute. That guy that came at the ninth hour is also getting a denarius. What's happening? That guy that came at the third hour is getting a denarius. What's going on? Let's not forget just a few verses before this, the foreman, excuse me, the master had told all of the others throughout the day, that I will pay you whatever is right. So, being the first in the field, you would assume that whatever is right for the rest of them would be a percentage of what you were promised. Because this would be fair. So when the foreman calls all the laborers in from the vineyard and offers each of them a denarius, a full day's wage, this payment is shocking. Especially considering that some had only worked for an hour. Remember, Peter said, look, Jesus, in case you've forgotten, we've left everything to follow you. So what then will we get? This statement from Peter rings a little differently within this context, doesn't it? And so because they feel like they've been treated unfairly, these first workers begin to grumble. They begin to complain. And so we read in these next few verses, it says, And upon receiving their denarius, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now we're getting to the point. Now Jesus is hitting home regarding Peter's statement. Now let's be honest. In any work-related context, their complaint has a little bit of merit, right? Let's be honest, right? If fair pay is fair pay, then why would a group who only worked one hour get the same as a group that worked 12? That's a legitimate question. And they even remind the master that they have borne the burden of the day. They've borne the heat. 
They have worked 12 hours in hot conditions and possibly a few OSHA violations, right? That's a joke. But they receive nothing more than a denarius after those guys received the denarius? Really? You've got to be kidding me. But they give themselves away in their complaint, which we tend to do when we're upset and when we're frustrated. They grumble this. They say, you, master, have made them, these latecomers, equal to us. Look, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. We were the first. What then will we get? Their grumbling isn't simply that they wanted more pay, but that those who came later have been made equal with them. Or the inverse, those who worked longer and harder and under possibly worse conditions have been brought down to the same level as those who came last. They shouldn't get what we have earned. You have made them equal with us who have labored longer. You have made them equal with us who have suffered, who have shed our blood, who have been martyred for your name, Lord. We have borne the burden of discipleship throughout all of our lives, and yet these have only managed to slip in peacefully on their deathbed at a ripe old age. Look, Jesus, we have left everything and have followed you. What then will we have? In Numbers 14, which most people don't read Numbers, and I don't know why. I think Numbers is a great book. Uh, it's, uh, weirdly, and I'm one of the weird people that find it to be one of my favorites, right? I think it's a lot of fun. But in Numbers 14, we read, we read how the people of Israel, they grumble against uh, three particular times. They grumble against Yahweh. They grumble against Moses, and they grumble against Aaron. They grumble against the Lord God, his prophet, and his priest. In the Septuagint, the word that is used in the Greek for the word grumbled in Numbers 14 is the exact same word that Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 20. And so for these disciples who would have been familiar with the Septuagint, it would have been the one they would have known more Jesus' point could not have been clearer. Those who grumble and complain because God rewards all of his people equally are no different than those who grumbled against God in the wilderness. And so for a first century Jew, but also for believers who have had the word of God for so long and 2,000 years of theology and Christian history to help us understand it, for those of us who know and grasp not only the reality, but the themes and the symbols of God's word, this point is supposed to strike us, and it's supposed to strike us hard. Chrysostom nails this on the head. He says this. He says, what does this parable wish for us to understand? It wishes for us to understand that all will be made equal with the righteous and with those who have toiled much. And there's a reason why. The reason why is because our righteousness is not of ourselves. It is an alien righteousness. It is because our righteousness, our wages, are from God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if this point wasn't enough of a clincher, then Jesus doesn't stop the story there. Right? He could have stopped right there and said, the last will be first and the first last. But he goes further to make his point. And he tells the apostles, he says this, he reminds them, God is sovereign over how he works through his kingdom and how he delivers his wages. And so he says this in the rest of the passage. But the master replies to one of them and says, Friend, I have done you no wrong. 
Did you not agree with me for a denarius? So take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I also give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now this response directly addresses this legal contract that he had made with him at the beginning of the day. Right? The master tells him, and says, look, you were promised a wage of a denarius. You received a denarius. Basically, why are you complaining? Right? What's your problem? Look, again, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we get? The master has in no way violated his agreement. He has in no way violated his covenant. This is what David was reading from the psalm before I got up here. Right? He says, just to look back on that, God remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham and his sworn promise to Isaac. God has not violated his covenant. He has done them no wrong. They have lost nothing but have received a fair wage per the covenant. So here's where we can easily see that this parable can also be interpreted to be spoken directly to the Jewish audience that might have been there, right? God has decided to bring the Gentiles into the covenant community, but God has in no way violated his covenant with them. Instead, he fulfilled it in the work of Christ Jesus. So then the master, what he does is he elaborates in very two clear ways that settle the matter fully. He states this, he says, Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I have given to you. Jesus proclaims very clearly that God has given the wages that he has agreed on, but also that he sees fit because it is his authority and his right to do so. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over his domain. He is sovereign over his kingdom. But he fulfills his covenants, and he fulfills them the way that he desires to do so. And every time he does, it is good because it is God. But notice, he tells this worker particularly, kind of how Jesus is telling Peter and telling us, he says, look, I have given you your wage. He says, take what is yours. You have possession of it. The wage is now in your possession. He has not withheld anything from them. And so for all who have been chosen to enter the vineyard of the kingdom of heaven have received Christ Jesus as their wage. So why are you complaining? You possess Christ just as he possesses you. Furthermore, why are you complaining that your fellow worker has received the same wage? It's God's decision and his alone to hand out our wages. And he has chosen to be gracious to all of his laborers equally, regardless of when they entered the kingdom. The wage is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, he asks them two questions, and he says this, and it addresses their main issue. And so he asks them, he says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That's rhetorical. The answer is yes. But here's the second question that gets to the main issue. Or do you begrudge my generosity? In the Greek, this could also read as, is your eye bad because I am good? Do you have an evil eye towards what I have done? 
So both of these questions address the issue of their heart, really, and which is their problem with God's mercy over our sin. Why do you begrudge my generosity? Why do you have an evil eye towards my generosity? Look, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What will we get? Gregory the Great reminds us very clearly. He says, it is always, absolutely always, to foolish and foolish to question the goodness of God. But he says, indeed, though, we must all rejoice exceedingly to even be the last in the kingdom of heaven. So parables, parables by their very nature, they are meant to serve as a mirror. Parables are meant to force us to take a long, hard look at what we see of our own sinful condition when we look into them. This is why Jesus tells them. This is why he gives us the interpretation to the disciples, but the crowds can't discern it. Because Parables are meant to force us to reckon with our sinful patterns. They're meant to, to force us to reckon with our expectations as they compare to the expectations of the kingdom of heaven. So just as the workers in the vineyard sinfully complain about the master's generosity, so also Peter and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even us, we all sinfully ask, what our rewards will be for our sacrifices that we have so sacrificially made for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do this, it reminds us that our focus is off. Right? Our concerns have been misplaced because we're too busy muscling for rank in the kingdom. We're fighting to be the first. We're fighting to be the best. We're fighting to be the most favored in the kingdom. And so Jesus reminds us again in verse 16 that the last will be first and the first will be last. He reverses the order from chapter 19, verse 30. And he frames the whole parable within this principle of the great inversion. This inversion that occurs within the kingdom of God, within the kingdom of heaven. The last will be first and the first will be last because Christ is our wage. But nevertheless, we're all known, right, and we're all known to grumble and complain sometimes. Life gets us down sometimes, and so we look around and we go, okay, sure, fine, I get it, right? God is very generous, but why is he being more generous to this guy? Why is he being more generous to this person and not to me? And when we get in those moments, we would do well to remember that God will do whatever he wills, but what he wills is never unjust. And so Jesus gives us, this par- gives us this parable to remind us that while God may not always give us what we think we want, he is merciful because he gives us a kingdom as our inheritance through Christ Jesus, regardless if we are the first disciples called or the last disciple that will ever be called. Christ is our reward. This has been the promise from the beginning of the covenants made between God and his people. Yahweh tells Abram, he says, fear not, for I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. God is our reward. Christ is our reward. And so as we come to the table, beloved of God, rest in Christ and rest in your exceedingly great reward. But also rejoice when another laborer is called into the vineyard, regardless of the hour in which they're called. 
because they too have found not only their reward, but their wages and their inheritance in Christ Jesus alone.